Let me pray for Nathan and then let's uh, go. Get those Bibles ready, get those minds open, the ears open and let's listen to what God's got to say through his word uh, this morning. Thank you Father for your word, thank you for this book that you've given us to look at, to study, to learn from and to act Lord God the way you would want us to. Thank you for the lessons that are in there and I just pray for your servant uh, Nate this morning as he brings a word to us that it might be clear that we might hear Lord God that you might challenge us and you might teach us so as the body of Christ we might grow to be more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Yeah, good morning. How are you all? How are we? Oh, we're good. Good. Yeah, excuse us because we're, we're a little bit upset. You know, it happens. For years, you know, for 20, 20 odd years, you actually dream of the day when you're actually going to be by yourself. And when it becomes a reality, it's not quite so easy. So um, Jules and I might be coming to some of you older folks amongst the congregation and say, well, how do you actually handle living by yourselves again? But uh, no, we, um, we're blessed uh, by our family. We're looking forward to hearing the, the uh, good reports of UM when you uh, get hooked in into Dunedin. This morning I have the privilege of trying to find my Bible, which is good, of continuing our series in Ephesians. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, perspective is one of those things that is designed to provide clarity. Perspective is designed to provide clarity. Because we all view things from a different vantage point. That's a common expression, isn't it? Not? If you went to the MCG, for instance, to watch a, a football game your perspective would be different from someone who was sitting in front of a 32-inch black-and-white television set in their lounge. There'd be two totally different perspectives of, of how you would react to the, the particular event, how you'd react to the game, and actually what you actually saw. Likewise, um, I sort of remember when I was a small child in, in our hometown in, in New Zealand, there was something that we used to hold every year. It's called a Blossom Festival. And this is, it was a chance for the community, which was an a agricultural community, many apple trees, many orchards. We would celebrate the start of harvest, the start of spring, with a blossom festival. And the, the whole town would get together and make up floats and, and we'd have a parade down through the street. And standing on the sidewalk of that street, you got a certain perspective of the parade. You would eagerly wait because you'd see a float come around the corner. You wouldn't know what was behind or around the corner, but you would, you would eagerly wait to see what uh, new float would uh, come by. See, my perspective from the sidewalk was completely different to the perspective of the guy in the helicopter buzzing around at the top of the parade who could see everything. Perspective is important. I love the story in Mark chapter 4, because in Mark 4 we get a, a view of two different perspectives about an event. This is where Jesus calms the storm. 
in Mark chapter 4. You see, on the one hand, you have the disciples who are seasoned fishermen, who are caught in a windstorm. By the way, who led them into the windstorm? It was Jesus. He led them there to, to test their faith. But their perspective was one of fright and dread and terror as waves were starting to crash over the boat and, and starting to fill the boat. And they had a perspective that they were going to die. They were sinking. But you know, on the other hand, you have Jesus' perspective. What's he doing? He's sleeping in the stern of the boat. He's asleep, in a deep sleep, in the stern of the boat. You see, Jesus had a different perception about what was going on. After all, he had created all things. He knows all things, and a, a small windstorm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee was no problem to Jesus. He was the creator and sustainer of life, and his perspective about what was going on around about was different. Because Jesus' perspective was, this storm is here, I've led you into this storm, you disciples, to teach you a lesson about faith. to teach you a lesson about faith. You see, perspective is important as a, a saint and a follower of Christ, especially amidst a licentious and depraved culture. Our perspective is important. That was a situation that was faced in ancient Ephesus. We went through that last week. It's also an issue that's faced here in modern Melbourne. You see, Paul knows the deep difficulties of living in such a culture, which is bent on self-indulgence and pleasure-seeking. Therefore, his best form of, of seeking to encourage these saints, seeking to encourage these believers and followers of Christ, is to give them a perspective, to give them God's perspective. particularly God's perspective about salvation, about how they were saved, how they became saints, how they became believers in Christ. And this is what this first chapter in Ephesians is about. So please turn with me. We're going to read it. We'll stand to read, so please stand up and we'll read together. I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version, but at times I will digress and use some other words from different versions just to, to help you understand some of the sentence structure in here. Ephesians 1 verse 3. And these are our memory verses, by the way. How are you going with the memory verses? This first two verses are our memory verse, so get on to it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Having predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the, the purpose or the good pleasure, the favour, the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, his good pleasure, his favor, his kind intention, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose or the good intention or the favor or the kind intention of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. In the original language, this these verses 3 to 14 are one sentence. For the sake of our English language, we've broken it up into many sentences, but in the original, it's, it's one long sentence of praise and glory to God. There are many deep and wonderful truths in this passage of Scripture. And it's not my brief today to, to fathom all those depths. There's no way we could... We could dig into such riches in, in 40 minutes. You know, as if we did, we'd be here all year. However, I wish to encourage you today with five key truths from this passage. Five key truths which highlight God's perspective about his work of saving you and I. These verses here are all about God's perspective. They're the divine perspective. They're the, the helicopter view, if you like. They're not the sidewalk view that you and I experience each day of our lives. We're moving to see what God says about salvation. In the first verse, we have an opening, an anthem of praise to God. It tells us one primary thing, that, that all spiritual blessings come through Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What an anthem of praise. And in the balance of the sentence, I believe, explains in detail what these spiritual blessings are. So right up front you have the subject. The, the, the subject of the sentence is who? God. Everything is through God in Christ. I think as I've looked and I've tried to, to give us some handles on this beautiful passage. The simplest way for me to do it is to describe these blessings through the word redemption. 
You see in the middle of the sentence in verse 7, in him we have redemption. Even though this word is only used once in the entire sentence, and in the middle of a sentence, I think all other verbs and all other clauses that make up this unit of thought here explain what redemption is in God. From before time began to when time is consummated. So let's start working through this word, through these concepts. So there are five truths which I want to bring out of this passage. Five, and that, that's, just not, that's not all that's there, trust me. These are just five to give you a framework to start thinking through these truths. Firstly, God's saving work is inseparable or indivisible. And I'll explain that a little bit more as I go through this. See, see what Paul is doing here, he's, he's painting a canvas. And his view on this canvas stretches from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, to eternity future. That's a pretty big canvas. And in our finite minds, sometimes we struggle to, to get the concept of what is going on here. But that's what he's doing, and he's saying God's saving work in this process of, of time and space cannot be separated, divorced from different aspects. And I think there's four movements that are going on inside, inside this. And movement one relates to redemption predestined. We get this in verses 3 and 4, especially verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Movement one of the, the redemption plan was something that was beyond the creation of the world. It was pre-temporal. It's where God the Father elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We can't divorce ourselves from the truth of that in this text. Movement two, or moment two, it's moment, they're not movements, they're moments. Moment two is redemption accomplished. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. How is redemption accomplished? We've celebrated today around the communion table. Redemption is accomplished because Christ died. Moment three, I think, is redemption applied. And this is the moment when redemption and forgiveness of sin becomes personally realized in our lives. You get that in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins. And it also, redemption applied, relates to being sealed with the Spirit. A little bit further down the sentence. 
in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So redemption predestined before the foundation of the world, before anything was, God elected us in Christ Jesus. This redemption was accomplished by the very work of Christ on the cross. The redemption is applied when you believe. When you place your faith and trust in Christ that that he will grant you salvation. And the result of that is your sins are forgiven and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. And then finally, the final moment in, in this sphere of God's indivisible work of saving you and I, we have redemption consummated. And that's sort of post-temporal, if you're right, like. Election and predestination is pre-temporal. Post-temporal is our future inheritance that will be acquired one day in the future. Isn't it a tremendous encouragement that as we walk this life today, that one day in the future we have an inheritance? And really this fourth moment is a combination of moments two and three. Redemption has been accomplished by Christ. His redemption has been applied to our lives. We have forgiveness of sins with the future hope that one day we will be with him as redemption is consummated. So this is the saving work of God. It's indivisible. Each moment of salvation from God's perspective cannot be separated from the other moments. God, by his eternal nature, sees all these things in one. It's only in our finite beings that we struggle to see these things. You see, God is omniscient. We hear that in the Psalms. He knows all things. He is perfect. He is just. And each moment of salvation from God's perspective is seen all as one. They're inseparable. They're indivisible from one another. And as I think about that, what, what does that stir in my heart? I'll tell you personally what it stirs in my heart is the security of our salvation. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ and his salvation, which is entirely the work of God, it is secure. Because your redemption has been Predestined, accomplished, applied, and consummated from God's perspective. I need no other passage in Scripture to remind me of the security I have in God's salvation. That's an encouragement to the believers at Ephesus amidst a crooked and perverse people with pressures coming on them from every angle to to conform to the culture of sensuality and lust. And Paul is saying, view your salvation from God's perspective. View your redemption from God's perspective. 
It is secure. How about for you and I? Do you have the security of your salvation based on the truths here? If not, call upon the name of the Lord. He is the only one that can save you. You cannot save you by your own works of merit or your good deeds or, or any such thing. It's only God that transformed the heart. So God's saving work is inseparable. The second point I just want to look at here is uh, something that causes great debate amongst theologians, amongst Christians, is God's saving work is limited by God's electing grace. This, I believe, is what the, the text teaches here. However, let's think about the sentence. Election is only one of the wonderful insights that we gain from this paragraph. There are other things here about God's gracious saving purposes. Note, you've got the language of predestination in verse 5 and 11. You've got the, the language of his good pleasure or his kind intentions. In verses 5 and 9, you have the fact that it's God's will to save in verses 5, 9, and 11. The fact that it's a mystery in verses 9, and it's his purpose in verses 9 and 11. It's his appointment in verse 11, and it's his plan. These are all marvelous truths that come out of this about God's salvation. But we're going to focus just on Electing grace here, and I'll, I'll say why. Because within this whole sentence, this verb for chosen is the only finite verb in the sentence. And what I mean by that, it means there's no other clause that it is subordinate to. Most of the other verbs in the, in the sentence are all participles, so that they're, they're trying to, to uh, explain something. I'll just put a footnote here. Even though sometimes grammatical priority does not always translate into conceptual priority, I believe it does in this case. So the concept that Paul is trying to get across here is God's free choice of his people to be uh, the clearest indicator of his lavish nature of his grace. And it's frequent right throughout the sentence, is it not? All you see is a repetition of the thing. It's God's gracious initiative to bless his people. And that's what is being communicated. Verse 5, according to the kind intentions of gracious favour and purpose of his will. Verse 9, according to the kind intentions of gracious favour and purpose set forth in Christ. Verse 11, according to his kind intentions or gracious favour and purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So as we consider election, I just want to note five things about election, which I think are important to remember and, and from God's perspective. Remember, we're talking God's perspective here. I think we struggle with these things. But let's look at God's perspective. 
Firstly, as I stated before, the whole action of choosing election is done by God. He is the subject. God is the only one doing the choosing according to this sentence. Secondly, God did not choose in a vacuum. Okay? But from the entire human race. He chose in light of all the known options. This is what this talks about here. Thirdly, there is no indication or any dislike for those not chosen. This text does not talk about that. Think about the Old Testament. Think about if you were from the tribe of Levi. You were chosen for a particular special purpose. But that didn't imply that God had any different intentions towards the other tribes. And I think in in, in this text the same implication is there. Fourthly, there's something we, we don't probably get in our English translation here, but the verb chose is in the middle voice. And when something's in the middle voice, it shows that there's great personal interest in the process. It's not a random and impersonal choice. God shows with great personal interest. The election is one of grace and love that is very personal. And fifthly, when it comes to election, the one who has chosen, us, who, those who have put our faith in Christ, have no legal claim on the one who chooses. Scripture is very clear about this. Very clear. That all human beings fall short of God's glory. I was reading through Romans 3 this week and it astounded me again as I read parts of that. I'll share Romans 3, 10 and 11 which says this, No one is right, no one seeks for God. That are. According to Romans 3, no one seeks for God. That is not our natural tendency. Therefore, this shows me that that God's love is accentuated by the fact of his initiative because we weren't even seeking him. He just did it. There's no obligation on God's part to choose anyone. The point is, if God had not taken this initiative, no one would have everlasting life. That's the point. The real problem is not why he had chosen someone, but why he chose any. Paul considers God's free choice of his people to be the clearest indicator of the lavish nature of his grace. So when did the choice take place? We've talked about this. It's a past action before the foundation of the world. 
This is when this choice took place, according to this verse. He chose him before the foundation of the world. It's pre-temporal. Once again, this indicates to us that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love, which are not dependent on temporal circumstances or human merit. How could it be? Because this choice was before, pre-temporal, before the foundation of the world. And why? Because it's rooted in God's deep, glorious, sovereign nature. And that's a mystery. Shows us that outside of time and space, before the creation of the world, God's choice is implemented within time and space, within the here and now. So what has happened pre-temporal is now temporal. Now, I want to try and explain this because this is a pretty weighty thing to think about, right? I've got a really poor illustration because it's a finite human illustration. It's trying to, trying to understand something from God's perspective. So we'll give it a go. It's like, say, if I was an architect, right? And I know that's hard to imagine, but I'm an architect and I'm designing the most glorious building I can design. No, it's not the sanctuary of Canterbury Gardens. It's a glorious building. And I'm planning, planning this, this particular piece of architecture. I've completed my plan and the building has started. And it's going to take 30 years for this, this particular building to be built. That's how glorious it's going to be. But however, I die halfway through the building process, 15 years into it. Some 15 years later, the building is completed according to the architect's plan and specification. The plans are carried out after my death in this situation. The plan is not still in the process of being planned. The outcome of the plan is determined. The building, all the building was required was completion. It's sort of in the same way, God is not in the process of planning salvation. That has already occurred before the foundation of the world. But currently throughout the past generations and the present generations and the future generations, we see the wonderful fulfillment of God's plan as people come to faith in Christ. For Paul, the gospel of Christ is not the manifestation of God's universal compassion, nor of his Salvation starts towards the world, but it's of his grace towards the elect. In other words, election defines and limits the saving work of God and not vice versa. So how does that work across our redemption application? We see, redemption applied is God's calling and saving us in our lifetime. That's the experience we all have when we put our faith in Christ, trust in Christ. And that is based on the grace of redemption predestined. God's purpose and grace given before time began. Which is made manifest in redemption accomplished. Christ's work in his first appearing on the cross. 
which in turn secures redemption consummated, the immortal life which continues into the future. So God's saving work is limited by his election grace. Another major theological theme that runs through the salvation from God's perspective is what I would call this. The saving work of God is encompassed by our union with Christ. One of the key themes of this letter is our believer's union with Christ. In this uh, sentence alone, this truth is mentioned about 11 times. Have you noticed that as you read through these verses? The terms, in him, in the beloved, through Christ Jesus. How often is that mentioned in these verses? I'd, I'd encourage you to go home, um, take a photocopy of your Bible page and do some circling. How many times does in Christ occur? Verse 4 and 5, we are chosen in him or through him. He predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. The first phrase in verse 4, I, um, I think, refers to the means by which we are saved. It functions in the same way as verse 5. We are predestined for adoption of sons through Christ Jesus. It describes the means by which God's choice became effective for us. This happens through Christ's death on our behalf which is a demonstration of Christ's lavish grace. Verses 6 and 7. In him we have redemption, forgiveness of sin by God's lavish grace in Christ. In him all things will be united when the fullness of time, the plan is complete. Verse 10. In him we have attained an inheritance. Verse 11. In him we have heard the gospel truth and are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our union with Christ is central to our salvation. So God's work, saving work of God, is tied intrinsically with our union with Christ. Christ has secured the benefits of redemption and justification and reconciliation and propitiation. He has secured everything about our salvation. And we are united to him. I think throughout Paul's letters we get this strong theme coming through about union. With Christ as one of his central truths for sharing and displaying the gospel. And this union with Christ traverses all the four moments of redemption. In redemption predestined, we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In redemption accomplished, we died with Christ. Galatians 2.20 talks about that. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So we died with Christ and we were raised with him. Romans 6 tells us about that. In redemption applied... We, uh, we who are dead are made alive with Christ. We are raised with him and were seated with him in heavenly places. 
Shabu will be talking about that in a couple of weeks' time as, he, as we dive into Ephesians 2. What a wonderful truth to be alive with Christ, to be raised with him, seated with him. And a redemption consummated. We will finally be with Christ. Now all these four things about redemption are distinct dimensions of the one single union with Christ. You can't separate them. You can't collapse them into one another because in here Paul's affirming the elect in Christ, we still however need to die with Christ and rise again with him. Until we believed we were outside Christ as children of wrath before being seated with Christ in heavenly places by faith and while we enjoy the status of Christ in us, we still hope for the day of being with Christ in person. Paul paints this view of salvation on this canvas. That's the stretches from eternity past through history and into eternity future. He presents these four distinct but inseparable moments of God's saving work in Christ. A union with Christ distinguishes and connects these four moments together and guarantees the efficacy of Christ's atoning work. As with the moments of redemption, so in the union with Christ, there is distinction and unity, and unity in distinction. Fourthly, we look at this wonderful sentence, God's saving work of God in Christ is Trinitarian. Doesn't that strike you as you read the passage? The whole triune Godhead is involved in salvation. The blessings that have come to us are the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is active in the first moment of redemption. He elects and predestines us, verse 4 and 5. The Son secures a second moment, redemption and forgiveness of sins. And then the Spirit, in the third and fourth moments, applies that redemption to us and serves as a guarantee of our future inheritance. So the saving work of, of God in Christ involves the whole triune God. And fifthly, the saving work of God in Christ, Jesus, is doxological. What does that mean? We're saying a doxology today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. On three occasions throughout this sentence, we, we have this wonderful thought to the praise of his glorious grace. God's Glory accompanies this, his act of predestining, applying, and consummating salvation. We have complete salvation from God's perspective. And when we understand we have complete salvation from God's perspective, what is the response? 
to the praise of his glory and grace. His glorious grace has been lavished out upon us. So as we have touched on these marvellous truths and we see God's perspective of salvation, this is not a perspective from the street view, folks. This is a perspective from God's view. A perspective that sees all these moments of redemption as one indivisible process. We see a marvel of God's electing grace. We understand that from God's perspective, our union with Christ is central to our salvation. Salvation is a triune work of God, and as a response, we are to worship God for his salvation, for his plan on our behalf. These truths were originally communicated to a church amidst a sexual and licentious culture who were prone to forget who they were in Christ. And when you do that, you start going down a slippery slope of what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism is something that, that is when you know you are saved by God's grace, but you continue to sin anyway. Romans 6 deals with that. And so Paul's thinking in his mind, how can I encourage these saints? How can, and vicely, how can he encourage us through his word? Because it's about perspective, folks. It's about our right thinking on God and who he is. And when we dwell on God's perspective of salvation, when we have right thinking about who God is and what he does through this process, things start to become very clear. Things like anxiety become less because as you try and struggle with life and struggle with your own circumstances, if you're encouraged to look at it from God's perspective, you will see a totally different vision. It will cause you not to worry about tomorrow. It will cause you to concentrate on who God is and what he has done for you. And this is the the heart of this. God's plan is perfect. Things like temptation. When, When you have right thinking about the scourges of entering into a lifestyle of sin through either media, through pornography, through whatever it might be, through addictions, through what it may be. You need to get your thinking right and think about things from God's perspective, about who you are in Christ, that you are a saint and you're called to follow him. That your salvation has been there since before the foundation of the world and that your salvation will be accomplished at the consummation of the world. And I think, in the end, the most fitting close to this topic has already been penned. It's been penned by Paul, Romans chapter 11. And this is what he said. And at times as I mulled over this wonderful sentence, I sensed this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means impossible to understand or interpret. And as we deal with the mysteries of salvation from God's perspective, at times we, are, we just have to say, that's inscrutable. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.